Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Policy Pack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And of course also by Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application layering product on the market. And I'd like to say a special thank you to Liquidware who this week renewed their sponsorship of the podcast. So if you enjoy the podcast each week, you have Liquidware and of course Goliath Technologies and PolicyPack Software to thank. I must also quickly warn you that my voice might sound a little off this week it's not your headphones or your speakers or anything like that Uh, i've got a pretty bad head cold this week so sorry about that i figured it was better to record this with a head cold and have the audio sound a little clunky than just miss an episode so haven't missed an episode yet in this episode 141 i didn't want to miss one for a head cold and with that let's get into some news This week, Nutanix held their next conference. In fact, it's actually still going on when I record this episode. If you're following the hashtag NextConf tagline on Twitter, you'll have seen an awful lot of announcements that were coming out, and people were saying that it was probably the most announcement-heavy conference that Nutanix has had yet. Unfortunately, I didn't get to attend any of it because, as I said, I was sick, but also pretty busy with work this week. But luckily, CRN.com shared some of their highlights from the conference, which include the announcement of Carbon Platform Services, which is a Kubernetes multi-cloud platform as a service with automated system-managed security. They state that this new cloud-native Platform as a service gives software developers a turnkey managed service experience on-premises, in the public cloud, or at the edge to build and run cloud-native applications. Carbon Platform Services also lets developers decouple applications from the underlying infrastructure, which you would think with Kubernetes, of course, and container technology. It was also announced that Nutanix has revamped its flagship hyperconverged infrastructure architecture by injecting NVMe-based SSDs and Intel Optane SSDs, which deliver up to 50% faster performance for I.O.-intensive workloads such as large databases. So I know from experience that some of their competitors have been targeting some of those like EHRs that are very database-intensive saying that their HCI was the best at handling that. So it looks like Nutanix is upping the game a little bit for those large databases, which is welcome because competition breeds innovation and it also breeds more competitive pricing. They also announced a SaaS-based management plan called Flow Security Central, which provides compliance monitoring, network visibility, and security operations across Nutanix-powered private clouds and public cloud environments. 
The offering also provides new micro-segmentation security planning, as well as security audit and remediation. Of course, with security being so front and center these days, micro-segmentation is also a big focus point, so good to see that too. Nutanix's Prism also got a new announcement in the form of Prism Ultimate, which adds advanced application insight and automation for troubleshooting application-related infrastructure bottlenecks. It also offers visibility into cloud IT resource consumption for targeted IT cost reductions and more accurate budgeting. The report also states that it can also monitor non-Nutanix environments, including popular virtualization stacks, to give Nutanix customers a single pane of glass for their entire infrastructure. So by the sounds of things, if you're running, I don't know, workloads on Hyper-V or on VMware vSphere, plus you're running some workloads on Nutanix, you can avail of, you can avail of the analytics and features provided in Prism for all of your environments that you manage. Also announced was a new partnership with Microsoft that will enable both companies to deliver a hybrid solution with seamless application data and license mobility, as well as a unified management across on-premises and Azure environments using something they're calling Nutanix clusters on Azure. It said as part of this collaboration, both companies will focus on extending Nutanix hybrid cloud infrastructure to Azure. The collaboration will include the development of Nutanix-ready nodes on Azure to support Nutanix clusters and services. It said they won't just be combining their efforts from a technology perspective, but they'll also be working together to offer seamless sales and support experiences for their joint customers. Azure customers will also be able to use their existing Azure credits as part of Microsoft's Azure consumption commitment to purchase Nutanix software. And in turn, Nutanix customers will be able to port their existing term licenses to Nutanix clusters on Azure or get on-demand consumption of Nutanix software through the Azure marketplace, enabling frictionless movement between private and public clouds within Azure. Nutanix and Microsoft will also enable managing servers, containers, and data services on Nutanix HCI on-premises or in Azure through the Azure Arc control plane. So I guess that's not all that surprising considering some of their stiff competition would be in the form of VMware, who are very cozy to AWS. So this would make a lot of sense for Nutanix to align more closely with Microsoft and Azure. But hey, it's good for customers of Nutanix and Microsoft, and also really good for all of us because, as I said earlier, competition tends to drive better pricing for all of us and also better innovation too. I just picked some of the highlights, or at least that I thought were highlights from the conference, and the conference is still ongoing, so if there's something else that comes out that's pretty big in the next couple of days and I didn't cover it on this week. I'll cover it on next week's episode of the podcast. But you can also go to the CRN.com article and read up on more of the announcements for yourself. And I'll share that with this episode, which is episode 141 on 5 bytespodcastcom You'll find the article under reference links. Unfortunately, this week, Citrix dropped a CTX article, CTX277455. They've disclosed that there is a vulnerability that was discovered in Storefront that, if exploited, 
would allow an attacker who is authenticated on the same Active Directory domain as a Citrix storefront server to read files from that server. The vulnerability has been given the identifier CVE-2020-8200. The issue affects Citrix storefront versions before 2006 for the current release versions. And for the LTSR versions, it affects Citrix Storefront 1912 LTSR earlier than CU1, Citrix Storefront 312, which was for 715 LTSR before CU5, and also Storefront 3.0 for 7.6 LTSR before CU8. If by some chance your users are not on the same domain as the Citrix storefront server that they're hitting, the vulnerability is not exploitable. Even if the users are authenticated in a transitively trusted domain. If you are on one of the affected versions, the advice is to upgrade. So all you lucky Citrix engineers and admins out there, it looks like you've got a storefront upgrade in your near future. Security researcher Jimmy Bain disclosed a pretty interesting vulnerability in Windows 10. Apparently you can use a windows.theme file, which are obviously associated with the Windows themes in Windows 10, and the wallpaper key can be configured to point to a remote auth required HTTPS resource. Then when a user activates the theme file, a Windows credential prompt is displayed to the user and a hacker can then steal the credentials. So it's another one of these instances where you're able to not necessarily put in a direct piece of malware or code that's going to run from the system itself, but rather exploit a vertical, in this case, a windows.theme file to point to a web server, which can then be used to fish and grab credentials from a user. Neowind.net reports that Bain has stated that these findings were disclosed to Microsoft. However, the bug was supposedly not fixed because it was a feature by design. It is not clear if the company does plan on fixing the bug since it has now been publicly disclosed or if it tweaks the file structure for the themes to prevent bad actors from leveraging it to a point to sites that require authentication. Neowind suggests that it's best for users of Windows 10 to always enable two-factor authentication as a primary form of account security to help protect against these types of vulnerabilities. In a similar vein, at least from a threat perspective, this week there was a report on a new phishing campaign that leverages email quarantine policies and uses an overlay screen tactic on top of legitimate company web pages to lure in its victims. The campaign was discovered after successfully targeting an unnamed company, according to an article by ThreatPost.com. The emails imitated the technical support team of the employee's company and claimed that the company's email security service had quarantined three valid email messages, blocking them from entering the mailbox. It said that the link provided to get to the quarantine emails once hovered over was suspiciously long. It had a pretty lengthy URL. So if you do suspect you're being targeted by this, that long, suspicious URL may be a giveaway if you hover over. If a user did click on that link without maybe hovering over it, it would bring it to what looked like a legitimate company web page. 
but researchers found that the attackers had added an overlay screen with a credential request. The fake login panel said the employee's Outlook sign-in timed out and asked them to re-input their credentials, then stealing the credentials. This IT stuff is pretty fun, huh? Argentina's immigration agency got hit with ransomware, which temporarily halted border crossings, which I believe is a first. The attack took place around the end of August. They noticed a flurry of support calls rolling in around 7 a.m. and realized that something was up. To prevent the ransomware from infecting further devices, the computer networks used by the immigration offices and control posts were shut down. According to an Argentinian news site, Infobay, this led to a temporary suspension of border crossings for four hours while the servers were brought back online. Bleepingcomputer.com learned that the ransomware actors had initially demanded a $2 million ransom, then after seven days increased the ransom demand to $4 million or about 355 bitcoins. Argentinian government sources told the Argentinian news outlet that, quote, they will not negotiate with hackers and neither are they too concerned with getting the data back, end quote. I think that's a pretty interesting response. My initial thought was, huh, I wonder what kind of data it is that they're not concerned with getting it back and if this could be used to attack other countries' immigration services. I mean, what if someone gets in to a country as a tourist and realizes that they maybe temporarily store some of the data at a border facility before maybe it syncs up? I'm completely spitballing here and making this up. But... If it's stored locally and then sinks later and they know that and then they just mount an attack at that post knowing that there's a precedent that, oh, well, they don't really care if they lose one day or a few hours worth of data from there. It's not that big a deal. It's not worth paying like potentially millions of dollars. And that person then goes undetected within that country. They could make a movie out of that. If M. Night Shyamalan steals that, I'm going after him. And of course, another Patch Tuesday is upon us. And this month, there are 129 vulnerabilities addressed in the Windows updates. ZDNet reports that 32 were classified as remote code execution issues, which are bugs that permit attackers to exploit vulnerable applications remotely over a network. And of these 32, 20 received a classification of critical. And these most critical of the vulnerabilities pertain to products that include Windows, on-premises Microsoft Dynamics 365 systems, Windows GDI, SharePoint, SharePoint Server, Windows Media Audio Decoder, Microsoft COM for Windows, Windows Tech Service Module, Microsoft Windows Codex Library, Windows Camera Codec Pack, and Visual Studio. So I'm not really sure if it's a good trend or a bad trend, but March actually set a record for number of vulnerabilities patched, and that was 115. June then broke that record at 129 vulnerabilities patched. And now we're in September, and we have equaled that 129 record. I'm leaning towards this being a positive that the issues are being found and addressed. It is a little worrying, however, that each month so many remote code execution vulnerabilities are being discovered. 
In the course of doing this podcast and covering stories of these remote code execution vulnerabilities and zero days and all kinds of nasty vulnerabilities, I've been noticing more and more that exploits are being posted publicly quicker and quicker too. I know a lot of organizations stay one month behind on patches thinking that they're being smart and letting others take the risk of breaking their shit rather than them taking the risk, but it seems like that is becoming a much more risky strategy. I think the disruption of a .NET update breaking an application in your environment and maybe requiring you to do a repair or a reinstall of that application that it broke, while annoying and potentially losing some money and productivity, it's nowhere near the cost to a business of a potential ransomware attack or malware attack. I think I say it every few episodes, but it's really important to patch, patch, patch. And on the topic of patches, Microsoft is finally coming good on their servicing stack updates. They posted an article this week announcing that they will be releasing future service stacks together with updates in a single payload. So no more thinking you finished your patching, but then you realize on reboot that there was a servicing stack to install as well. In order to avail of this small miracle, you will need to broadly deploy the September 2020 SSU or any later SSU on all Windows 10 version 2004 devices in your organization. NewStatesman.com reported this week that NVIDIA may be trying to acquire ARM from SoftBank in a deal that that could be worth 32 billion pounds. And if you're wondering who ARM is, ARM, or (laughs) ARM, my accent, that's why I avoid saying it. The article, which honestly is just pure speculation, but fun nonetheless, at least fun for me. But in it, they rationalize that NVIDIA could buy the company to just destroy it and take their product off the market. Like I said, I think it's just a little bit of fun to have this speculation. And we'll have to wait and see to find out if this is a work of fiction or some amazing prophecy. Ubico had a pretty interesting announcement this week. They stated that together with Microsoft, they're launching a Go passwordless pilot program where qualified service providers, which would include systems integrators and consulting services in Canada, the EU, UK, and US, are permitted to nominate some of their customers to pilot an Azure Active Directory passwordless flow. And for a limited time, Ubico and Microsoft are offering 25 free YubiKeys to up to 100 qualified customers to pilot this Microsoft Azure AD passwordless flow and Yubi enterprise delivery service. I've been covering the YubiKeys quite a lot and if you follow the likes of ZDNet or Ars Technica or some of the big publications in the industry, you'll have undoubtedly already heard of the YubiKeys, but if you haven't, I would urge you to go check it out. And if you want to get one for yourself, I find a really good way to do that is to actually buy a subscription to Ars Technica because they include some YubiKeys in that. So you're getting value out of, you know, the amazing articles that they post. They post some really in-depth stuff whilst also getting these YubiKeys for yourself. In order to join the program, 
Service providers will need to identify a customer with 500 plus Azure AD users that has the technical FIDO2 requirements to go passwordless. They also need to enroll their organization into the program. And then you can nominate your customer for the pilot. Then if you and your customer are selected for the pilot, you will be contacted for your shipping details to get the YubiKeys. You must also be running on Windows 10 version 19.03 or later. Obviously be using Azure Active Directory and you'll have to use the Yubico's YubiKey 5 series, Microsoft Azure AD MFA enabled for users and integrate Azure AD with Microsoft and third-party applications such as Office 365, Salesforce, ServiceNow, and what have you. And a quick note to wrap up the news segment for this week, but hey, if you want to be a Citrix CTP or a Citrix CTA, now is your chance. Applications are open to join the class of 2021. I had the honor of being a CTP for two years. That's a really great program. It's very elite because they keep it to 50 or less in a given year. And you get to network with some really sharp people from our industry. And you get some really great exposure to the um, Citrix development and program teams. And the CTA program has also been going from strength to strength. And you actually get a lot of the same benefits that the CTPs do. Plus, it's still, I believe, a larger program in terms of number of people in it. So there's a really good way of networking with other Citrix techies, too. If you're listening to this and thinking, oh, well, I'm probably not cut out for this or you're a little too nervous to apply, I would encourage you to apply anyways. Just throw caution to the wind. What's the worst they can say? No. And if they say yes, you get to join a really great program and you're able to put that you're a Citrix CTA or CTP on your resume. It's a win. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. So remember a couple of weeks ago on episode 139, I mentioned that Steve Sifu posted an incredibly detailed step-by-step breakdown of what happens when you log into a Windows 10 machine. Well, he was back this week with a post on what happens when logging in via RDP. Also, after a lot of people complained about him posting such lengthy explanations on Twitter threads, Steve has also published these on his blog, and I'll share links to that with this episode, which is episode 141 on 5 and you'll find it under reference links. Well worth checking out. It's a really interesting look at exactly what's going on when we log in every single day. For all you WVD fans out there, I suggest that you check out the Windows Virtual Desktop Admin Tool, as it will allow you to add, edit, and delete host pools, add, edit, and delete application groups, add, edit, and delete application and desktops, add a list of users to applications or desktops, send messages to single users or multiple users on a specific session host, log off users for maybe like hung sessions, start and deallocate session hosts, delete session hosts and VMs in Azure, including disks and NICs, plus much more. It really just makes managing your Windows virtual desktop a lot more intuitive than using the Azure tools or lack thereof. So it's definitely worth checking out. And finally, James Rankin once again 
just shared an excellent blog post. This time it's on how to stop FSLogix profile containers bloating when running Microsoft Teams. So I know that Teams adoption increased by like over 700% in the first few weeks of the COVID work from home surge. And one of the common complaints in the IT circles is that it's an absolute pig. It's one of those Electron apps that just consumes resources like crazy. It's also one of those apps that um, brings down a pretty large cache, which in an FSLogix profile container is not ideal because it can significantly bloat your profile container, which you don't want. It's going to overall hurt performance and just eat up disk space. And I'm not going to give away what the solution is on the podcast. I don't do that. I don't take other people's work on their community blog posts where maybe they're not even getting any pay for their blogging work or they don't have sponsorship or anything like that. I don't want to take someone's hard work and then just share it on this podcast verbatim. So I encourage you to check it out for yourself. Give James the views, give him the clicks. He deserves it. Quality of the content that he's been putting out, particularly in the last year or so has been incredible, really in depth, And if this is going to be your first article of his that you check out, you'll definitely want to check out some of his other posts too because he gets into a lot of stuff like optimizing Windows logins and a lot of other topics too. I guess before I close, I should say good luck to all in my fantasy football competition in the NFL. The first game is this weekend. And also, if you hurry, you can still sign up for the Fantasy Premier League competition. Obviously, the cutoff is going to be when the first match kicks off, which I think is this Saturday. So if you want to get in on that, there's still a little bit of time. If you're listening to this after Saturday, sorry, Charlie, you missed out this year. And as always, i just like to say thank you for listening. Thanks to my amazing sponsors for continuing to support the podcast. And I hope to catch you all next week.